Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Been with us for this past year at any time, you know that we have been going through a sermon uh, series through Matthew. And so we are going to pick that series back up. And so over the past year, we have been following Jesus through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Before we took a break, we finished by witnessing Jesus amazing the crowds with his authoritative teaching after the Sermon on the Mount. He healed the sick and the lame, and he even cast out demons from uh, a legion of demons from a man across the sea and forgave uh, a man of his sins. And so today we're going to pick back up and I'm going to kind of remind us of where we left off from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. Uh, most of this will be on the screen or the, around you or behind me. So if you would like to follow along, it, it will be up there. But our focus today is going to be on verses 14 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along, or there will be uh, a moment on the screen for you to follow. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17, the Word of the Lord. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table... In the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners and were eating with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard this, and he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so these verses will be what we focus on today, 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him and asked him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they are but new wine into wineskins, and both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for giving us the privilege of being your sons and daughters together in this church. Fill my mouth with your word and make your spirit speak to the hearts today. Lord, uh, make the meditations of our heart pleasing to you as we look at this narrative in Matthew. God, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, To remind us of a little bit of the context, we pick right back up at the dinner feast uh, that Jesus was having with Matthew and others who were invited, the tax collectors and the sinners. 
Right before verse 14, Jesus had overheard the Pharisees talking to some of his disciples. And now the Pharisees were this religious sect that really prided themselves on their ability to follow the law, to follow the commands uh, that they themselves put in order, the traditions of man or even the law of Moses. And so these Pharisees are, are talking to the disciples of Jesus And Jesus steps in before his disciples could speak. And Jesus answers them by saying, It isn't the healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. And closes by telling them to go and to think about this. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so verse 14 picks up with the disciples of John the Baptist coming into the scene. And they too have a question for Jesus. And so they ask, why do your disciples not fast when we and the Pharisees fast and fast often? When we look at the other gospel accounts of this narrative, we see both from Mark and Luke, the disciples of John were not alone in asking this question, but that the Pharisees were among them, that, that they prompted the disciples of John to maybe ask this question. We do not need to wonder who really was behind this question. We have seen the Pharisees before use others to do their bidding. And so we see them doing that once more. But even if the Pharisees had a silver tongue, we must ask why the disciples of John were still willing to proceed with asking Jesus this question. For their own master had nothing but great and wonderful things to say about Jesus. Looking at John 1, 27, John tells his disciples regarding Jesus that even he, John the Baptist, one of the great prophets and teachers, isn't even worthy to untie the thong of Jesus' sandal. Later in the Gospel of John, we, we get to hear from John's own mouth in, in John 1, 29 and 36. That when John sees Jesus from way off in the distance, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Certainly, the disciples of John would have known what their master had thought about Jesus. Being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the Savior of the world. And even if they did miss all of that, all the good teaching that John taught to them as his disciples, we know that John didn't have good things to say about the Pharisees either. In Luke 3, 7, John, as he's baptizing in the the Jordan River, He sees the Pharisees coming from a distance, the Pharisees and the scribes. And he yells out across the way, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? And so we have to think about this. Why on earth are the disciples of John asking Jesus this question and siding with the Pharisees? Why would they partner with these brood of vipers when their master loved Jesus so much? Now remember this question because in verse 14, in the previous section, it comes on the heels of Jesus saying that I have not come to call the righteous, 
but the sinners. If you remember that in verse 13 that we just read a second ago. And so why are they asking this question to Jesus? The answer is clear. They don't believe it. They don't believe what they are seeing and hearing Jesus doing. They can't wrap their minds around the fact that this religious leader, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is eating with filthy, dirty sinners and tax collectors. These irreligious people who had no regard for the higher things of God and righteousness. And if you stop for a minute and think about that, Jesus was the Christ. He is the Son of God who would usher in a new world order. The one who would bring the kingdom of, to God and the one uh, to earth eating and drinking. And now we see him eating and drinking with tax collectors at a giant party. Would you believe it? Could you imagine this? They can't believe their eyes. This isn't what religious people do, right? Even John the Baptist, their master, was found not with nothing more than a camel's hair vest, eating locusts and honey. You know, we point at, at John and say, that guy, he's religious. That guy, he's worth following. He will take me to God. And even if you knew the Pharisees were a brood of vipers, they still had some idea of what the world thought a religious person was to act and should be doing. And if we're honest, we, we do too. We think we know what, what the religious people of our world should be doing, what we should be doing. We have our own standard of righteousness that we try to live up to. And so we get it wrong, and we have a, a misconception of Jesus. I remember one time going to East Asia, we, uh, which is a, a trip that we take with crew uh, on the, in, during the summertime. We take six weeks to go on a mission trip to crew uh, or to East Asia, uh, to closed country to the gospel. Uh, and we go out there and we take a group of students every other summer and, and get to share the good news of Jesus with people who, who have never heard his name. And so we were out there one summer and we got to take a trip to a Buddhist temple. And if you want to imagine what what sort of good things you could do to please God and to, to stand in a right place with him, the, the Buddhist temple had it. You know, if you think spinning a bunch of prayer wheels every day, day in and day out, will get you closer to God, it was there. If you thought praying before a giant golden idol would get you closer to God to make you holy, oh, it was there all over the place. If you thought giving money to a tree that promised eternal life would get you eternal life, it was there. This is a place that prides itself on giving people an opportunity to, to live the righteous, the godly, the religious life. And I remember as I was walking through, there was a, a woman and, and she was praying before one of these idols. And as she was praying, it, it, it really reminded me of a, of a football calisthenic or like a warm-up where, you know, you're going from the ground and you're pushing yourself up 
And this is, this is what she would do over and over and over again. She would, she would go to the floor and she would get on her knees and then she'd go back on her, on, her, on her heels and she would just do that over and over and over again, praying to this idol. And she stopped and I looked up and our eyes crossed and, and there was a moment where here's a woman performing her act of religion, you know, performing what she thought was going to give her life. And man, we looked, and there was no life to be found in this woman. You know, she probably grew up going to this temple her whole life. She probably spun the prayer wheels every day, expecting something to happen to make her life uh, validated to find some significance in this religious experience. And here she is praying before this God. Miserable, tired, beaten, and near the end of her days. And I wonder if that's not true for us as well. You know, as we continue to to look for Sunday school to be our way of pleasing God. You know, reading our our Bible every day, maybe maybe that is what we pride ourselves on, giving up things of this world like TV and doing these really good things except expecting something uh, more from God as, as, as if he hasn't given us everything already. We do the same things as this woman in the temple, We expect our own efforts to our own works to give us right standing with God. We boast in the things God has given to us to do, like fasting and praying, reading our word. And yet our heart is far from him. We are proud. The disciples of John are proud. They see themselves as strong and not weak. They see themselves as righteous because of their works rather than sinners like those enjoying Christ. And so do you compare yourself to others in this room hoping that you hear someone else during that time of confession confessing something that's just worse than what you did that week? Do you hide your sin Chris just read to us, if we, if we say we don't have sin, that makes, us, that makes God a liar because we have all sinned. And so do you hide your sin behind a facade of righteousness that I go to every Bible study. Man, I read at 4 a.m. I've read every Banner of Truth book there is, right? And you hope no one ever asks you the question, How are you doing? What's going on in your heart? Where's your sin? Right? (laughs) We run to religious accolades to keep us on a spiritual high. But in the end, this will never make us happy. Our heart is so wickedly obsessed with ourself. And it's easy to do in the Reformed faith to pride ourselves on how many books we've read, our understanding of the truth, the depth of our theology and how correct it is. 
living a disciplined life. And all of this, I just want to restate this, is good. This is good. These are very good things that we pursue and we do with excellence. And yet we all stumble down the path of the disciples of John here in our passage, don't we? We want to appear strong when we are weak. We want to appear smart when we are foolish. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For what makes Jesus so amazing in this passage is that he turns the table on the world that we view it, the power and where the power of God comes from. Throughout the entire account of Matthew, Jesus has been blowing our understanding into bits, right? Even when he was doing, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't putting more burdens on us, but he was telling us about how to be happy, how to be blessed, how to live a life that will be pleasing and enjoyable for him, to be with him. And they had never heard anything like this with such authority and power. He not only could heal the sick, but he even cast out demons by his word. Jesus has always been redefining what we understand to be true about who he is. And this, met, this moment right here in our passage is no different. And so here's my point. For the power of God is not in the works of our hands, but it is found in the man of Jesus Christ who is the bridegroom, who calls his own to himself, and he clothes them in his righteousness, and he gives them new life and spirit full of unimaginable joy. Jesus answers the question for the disciples of John by saying this in our passage, verses 15 to 17. He says, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Notice how Jesus does say to his disciples that, that they will fast. There will come a time when his disciples will fast, when he is taken away, already projecting that he knows he will, his, his life will end at the cross. But we know from Matthew 5 that Jesus hasn't come to remove the law. In chapter 7, that he expects us to be perfect like, his father, like our Father in heaven is perfect. He supports his statement that he is the bridegroom and that those with the bridegroom can't mourn by saying, saying this. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, 
and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wineskins into fresh, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus' primary answer to the Pharisees and to the disciples of John is the attendant of the bridegroom cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them. In other words, happy are those who are with the bridegroom, for they are full of joy and there is no room to mourn. And many of us this summer have had the pleasure of enjoying the marriage of a number of couples in our church. And even in the midst of COVID and one of the more gloomy seasons that our generation has experienced, all who came into the gusty church parking lot were full of joy that they shared with the bridegroom as he saw his bride coming, walking down the aisle. And so Jesus answers the disciples of John by saying that he is the bridegroom. He is the reason his disciples are not fasting. He is the bridegroom attending the wedding feast. He is the reason for so much joy and not mourning. It is not that his disciples will not partake in fasting. It is that he is present with them now. And so how could they fast when the one who satisfies hunger of the soul is in their midst? The teaching of Christ is that he alone is God and has the power to bring about extraordinary change. He knows that fasting will not make anyone righteous or holy before God. It is only through Jesus anyone can be made right in, <clears throat> before God. It is only through Jesus anyone can, can, can be made holy and righteous. No other philosophy or religion on the planet teaches that a man is saved not by what he has done, but is saved by what God has done for him. And what makes someone a Christian is simple. That Jesus is the bridegroom. What makes someone right with God is that Jesus is the bridegroom. And so three things I want to draw from this. One, that we have been called. Two, he has justified us. And three, there is no greater joy than being made new in the presence of the bridegroom. Jesus is the one that has invited all of us to come and to enjoy him as our bridegroom. Our passage says, how can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn as long as they are with him? Well, who invites a people to attend the wedding? It's the bridegroom and the bride. We had nothing to do with our coming to Jesus. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Enemies to God. Romans 3.23 says that all of us are put under that truth, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Nothing we could ever do could earn us a right to be at this wedding feast. There was nothing, there was never enough prayer or fasting or reading or doing good things that could ever have brought us to the joy of knowing Jesus and being at this, this wedding, at this feast. Instead, he is the good shepherd who knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And he is the one who is bringing the sheep into the fold just as it was Christ who saw Matthew in the tax booth and called to him, so too it is for us. 
He sees us before him, and he has called to you to come and to know him, to partake and to feast and to know joy. And not only has he called you, but he has justified you. And to justify is to make you right with God by clearing our debt, the debt that you and I have because of our sin, because of our wickedness. For the wages of sin is death, God's word says. And so Christ, our bridegroom, calls us to himself and he justifies us through his own blood that he shed upon the cross for our sin. Therefore, there is nothing for us to boast in. For nothing that we have done to earn his love and affection. He is the one that has called you and me and has made us right with God today. The bridegroom has made you right with the Father through his own death upon the cross. When we come to Christ through his calling, he clothes us with his own righteousness and right standing with God. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 Paul writes of Jesus being like a husband to his bride, the church, saying, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus is the one who has cleansed you by his word without spot nor wrinkle. He is the one who has made you holy and blameless before God. He is our bridegroom that justifies us. Jesus has made us new and will keep us under his tender love and care and affection for he is our bridegroom. Which leads me to my last point. There is no greater joy than being made new in the presence of our bridegroom. For we get to partake in this joy. We get to partake with Christ at the feast instead of mourning outside looking in. Jesus has invited us to be partakers of this feast. Jesus has justified you to be worthy at this feast. And there is no greater joy than being in the presence of our bridegroom. There is nothing like Christianity in all the universe. There is no religion that calls for its followers to be full of joy and then provides more joy than their heart could ever handle. To be called and cleansed by Jesus Christ is the greatest gift that the world has ever seen. We do not deserve this gift. We are the enemy of the bridegroom. But he has invited us to be partakers of his joy by making us his bride and making us his own. And this is not just a temporary patch. This isn't a, a quick fix solution to our problem of sin, it is permanent. As our passage says, he is not sewing a new patch onto old garments, nor putting new wine into old bottles. He is doing something better 
something greater. He has washed us in his own blood. And he will not let that be ruined by the flesh. He has promised to give us new life and new birth. To change this old and worn out flesh. And give us something entirely new. And he doesn't just, he doesn't just cause us to be reborn and say, go and live it out. He doesn't just give us this new flesh and say, all right, kid, you're on your own. Good luck. No. He has given us his spirit. He has made us new and he has filled us with a new spirit, a new heart. That we may obey God with joy. That we may walk with him with joy. That we may know Jesus with joy in our heart, even as we walk through the trials of life, even as we stumble and we fall. This is the gospel. It's not an act of religious work. It is the life of Jesus Christ that he has given to you, that he has called you to, that he's invited you to, that he has dressed you for the occasion with his own righteousness, not your own. And I just want to close with this passage from Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, and he has made his bride ready for the occasion. For there is no greater joy to be in the presence of the bridegroom. Jesus is unlike anything the world has ever known or ever seen. So let us repent today from our righteous works. Let us repent today from our boasting, our comparison. Let us repent today of trying to add something to the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing to add. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing greater. Let us repent and turn to this Christ to stop ignoring that invitation. And let us come and, and be with the bridegroom to be in his joy. Will you come and know your bridegroom today? Will you come and rejoice with him today? Will you come and, and feast and let your soul be filled? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are our bridegroom. That you sent your son to come and to die for us. That your blood was sufficient to pay our debt Father, that there is nothing we can add to it, nothing we can do. There is nothing more we need but to just come and to be. And so, Jesus, make us repent. Make us turn to you, Jesus, that we may rejoice with you, that we may rejoice in your blood, Jesus. In your name, amen.